0: All right, everybody. Welcome to Eastlake. My name is Brent. If it's your first time checking us out, welcome. We are glad that you are here. We are on part four of our Befriend series and day three of leftovers. So hope you're enjoying those. My uh, my attitude toward turkey has gone like a full 180. I like I don't know about you, but like Wednesday I was like yeah turkey, and then like yesterday guys like we could do leftovers for lunch, and I was like. Ooh, uh. Like I'm, I think I'm done. Like I'm 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 past that. So the uh, trajectory of turkey, my love for turkey, has gone in the opposite direction of my belt loops. So that that has that going for it. So uh, it's been a fun week. Hopefully, you had a fantastic Thanksgiving. Uh, and we're so thanks for coming today because I know there's a lot of other things you could be doing on on a Thanksgiving holiday weekend and. Then being here with us. So we're honored that you would be here if uh, we are concluding a series today. So it's part four. If you've missed the first three parts or if what I'm talking about interests you at all, there's a website you can go to eastlaketricities.com talks and catch up on those things. Um, but the idea has been, uh, the, the whole series has been about this idea that Jesus spent some time with his disciples uh, right before he left and he had this conversation with them. It was captured for us in John chapter 15. And in that conversation, he talks to them about like a shift that's coming. They don't know it, but he's about to die and get, you know, resurrected from the dead and then do the whole session. The bottom line, is he, he's about to disappear off the scene. And he knows that the thing that has kept this group together, specifically this group of 12 men, uh, his disciples, uh, has been his physical presence and that's no longer going to be there. And so he inserts this brand new shift of thinking. Instead of it being about me and following me, I want you to love people. I want the thing that, that binds, that is the glue that binds you together to be the way that you love people, he, he says it really simply in this way. My command is this: to love each other as I have loved you. You've watched me, you've observed me, love you, but also the people around you, um, and it's been kind of a unique countercultural way of loving. I mean, we have we always find ways to love uh, people who like us. Um, so he, he prefaces this whole thing with, "Listen, it's not. I'm not asking you to do a great thing when you like people who like you." Um, or dress like you or talk like you—that's that, normal. I, 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 I get that. Even, he says even sinners do that. I'm what I'm asking you to do is something that you've seen me do that's quite a bit different than this way. Um, I want you to love people who are nothing like you, and and uh, and have that be the defining thing that that kind of binds you together. So we said, well, we're gonna we're gonna look at a few specific categories of in our culture, people who, in a very very tolerant culture, they still have like free passes to somewhat avoid. Um, so, um, we, 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 in week one talked about the people who are experiencing high levels of shame, something has, they've done something stupid and there's, there's, it's public knowledge. Uh, and now they're being shamed publicly, whether locally or, or, you know, maybe not in the newspaper necessarily, but like at your workplace, you just, you just know people who are going through, they did something dumb and, and, uh. And Jesus had this scenario where he approached this woman who'd been caught red-handed in adultery, and it was like this big effect. And, you know, the easy way out would be for him to to avoid the situation, not get mixed up in it, and he moved towards that person. Um, And and so we we have this tendency to avoid people who are going through shame, and and I I think that uh, the pathway towards loving people, to doing this thing that Jesus talks about, is to do the exact opposite of that. And then last week was this idea of entitled or thankless people. And the hard part with entitlement is uh, again that it's hard to see in the mirror. Um, We we can see it in other people very easily. Um, We experienced a meal this week with people who were thankless. Uh, They got done with dinner and said, "What's for dessert?" and "Let's do something." You worked your fingers to the bone getting that thing ready, and they they were not thankless or they were not thankful at all in that way. And so there's a sense in which our society gives kind of a free pass to thankless and entitled people, being like, "Hey, you know what?" You don't need that kind of negativity in your life. Get out of there. Don't do that. Don't don't enable them. Get out. You know whatever. And so, uh, but there's a sense in which uh, I, I think that uh, we are called to kind of move towards that and, and understand that I'm not in it just for transactional relationships. So, all of that leads up to today. Today we are going to be talking about uh, the wrecked and the restless, moving towards the wrecked and the restless. Or you could even put the word broken in there, moving towards um, sort of the broken. Here's what's interesting about this one is uh, this one is a little bit more internal than some of the other ones. The other ones have been very, very visible in others. It's very visible to see when people's going through shame and again, visible to see entitlement in others. Um, in this one, uh, we live with uh, a, a, a acute sense of brokenness Uh, and a sense that we are not whole. We live with a sense of we know uh, a lot of dirt about us, and uh, we are really, really good at keeping up a facade and projecting an image of what we want people to know us. But our best friends, my guess would be that your best friends Know some dirt on you and love you anyways, and that's why you like them as friends. And when you meet a new friend and you say, and, and like you're going, like you're doing the whole like friendship thing, or maybe it's like a dating relationship thing, and, and you're, you're kind of testing the waters out, and I really like you, I really like you. And then you're kind of like um, a down to earth, like realistic person. You say, you, you like me, you like this version of me, but wait till you get to know me. You know what I mean? Uh, you don't even know me. Like, and, th- and then they're like, oh, but I-, I promise you that when I get to know you, I'll, I will continue to like you. And like, you don't know me dot, dot, dot. Right. And then, and then we, as the relationship kind of progresses, then like that and all, all that knowledge comes up because we, we live with an acute sense of our own personal brokenness. We, we do sense that we may not have, we may may not be currently experiencing shame. And again, entitlement is so hard to see in the mirror, but when it comes to I'm not perfect, I know that I'm not, we, there's nobody going, um, oh, I don't know. I feel, I feel pretty good about that kind of stuff. We, we know about ourselves too much. Um, And in fact, we know so much about ourselves, it actually helps us when other people own up to their weaknesses and their flaws. In fact, when it comes to our relationship, okay, and I'm talking about you as as the person who attends the church and as an audience member, a parishioner or whatever you want to call it, and a pastor, and it's not just me, okay, this is just any sort of platform of influence, and the people who are on the receiving end of that, okay? So you like it when people who are supposed to have it together talk about how they don't have it all together. It makes you feel good about life, doesn't it? When my wife gets up here, she was up here last week, and we did a message together, and when she talked about... um, you know, or or, uh, or when, when conversations come up in, the, in those scenarios where it's clear, like there's been something that's not been perfect in our relationship and we've got some flaws and I don't know how to use a dishwasher and yada, yada, yada and all that stuff that you're, you're in there going, yes, yes, excellent, excellent. I'm not the only one. It's really nice. It's really nice to have that. In fact, your I know this, as I've been doing this eight years now, okay? I know that my secret code to getting to endear myself to you is to uh, talk about my shortcomings and my flaws. Now, I can abuse that, and it's a very delicate line, okay? I, I know that there's a lot of things that factor into this thing, right? I need to have enough humor to keep you interested, enough pace to keep you awake. Um, I need to have enough history to make the, all the text that you've already read 30,000 times feel like the first time that you read it again. All of that, I get that. But then every once in a while, if I can just inject some like real life, hey, Having kids is really hard, huh? And you're like, Oh good. His his kids aren't perfect too, right? It makes you feel and that's fine, it should. It's great. And I know I, I, I gotta do it, but I don't want to do it too much so that I lose moral authority in your life, right? That's the balance. You want me damaged but fixable. That's what you want. It's the same way that you want your kids. I want my kids. I want my kids to be damaged but fixable. I want them to not be like the perfect whatever's. I want at some point my kids to come to me when they're like 22, 23 years old and be like, dad, you didn't know this. But when I was 16, I snuck out and blah, 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 blah. I don't want them to get arrested for it. I just want them to have some stories with their damage, but it's fixable. Like it, it, it can work. Um, and, and, and we live with that sense. We know that that's what we want for our kids. That's what we kind of want from our pastors, or the people who are supposed to be like on this whatever platform of, of interesting uh, up there. So, anyways, and understanding you don't have to be perfect, but don't start feeling like a burden, right? All right. A few uh, years ago, I think it was about 18 months ago. Uh, There's a pastor in California a church called Saddleback Church. His name's Rick Warren. That church is probably familiar to you. It's one of the biggest churches in America. Rick Warren wrote uh, Purpose Driven Church, which was followed up by Purpose Driven Life, which sold like, I don't know, a gazillion copies at Costco. And then they made Purpose Driven Dog Owners, Purpose Driven Cat Owners, all kinds of different, whatever you are, what it, let's find a book for you and, and talk about how you're Purpose Driven. You made a lot of money on it. Anyways, so that's how you might know the name. Uh, a thing came out about 18 months ago that his son ha- had committed suicide, and it, was, it, made, it shook, it really did, it shook like the Christian church world. Like a, a bunch of, and there wasn't like an email that went out to everybody like in my position, but it was just like, oh my goodness, this, is, this was significant. Everybody was watching on Pins and Needles how Pastor Rick would respond because he had been so influential in the light, and he had given himself to the church. And really cool story about him. Um, he, he made so much money stuff on the books, he gave back every dollar the church had ever paid him and does not take a salary from the church. I mean, like, he's, his character, his integrity, it was like... Like That's the kind of guy that you wanted to be like. You wanted to be that type of a creative church leader and and then have something like this happen in his life. Was the pressure of being a pastor's kid influential in this whole deal? Could something else have been done? And I followed this story from a distance for several, several weeks, like a lot of people in my position, uh, because I, a couple reasons. One, I'm the son of a pastor. So I've lived that, they call him PK, PK life, pastor's kid's life. Uh, and then also I have four kids who... Uh, are growing up under the supervision of all of you in all of these different classrooms as your leaders and whether they like it or not, their behavior influences what some people might think of their dad. And that's a lot of pressure for a kid. Maybe not so much when they're five, but as they get older, it, it can become interesting. And it can be one of those things where it's okay to be damaged as long as it's fixable. We live with this damaged but fixable. We're, we're, as a society, we're okay with that, but that's as far as it gets, and in fact, that may be the, some of the voices that are inside of your head as you go to work and as you are, are trying to, you know, do your life thing. It's okay. It's acceptable uh, in our friendships to be damaged but fixable. Nobody expects you to be perfect. Um, uh, it's okay to be able to, you know, be an employee of somebody. Is, you're damaged. Like, they're not expecting perfection from you but fixable. Or even as you got in the car this morning to come to church, like, there's whispers in our in the back of our heads. Um damaged but fixable. Keep it together and keep it together, keep it together. It's haunting. Nobody likes a person who's a, who is a burden. Nobody likes people who are broken beyond repair. That can be a very emotional, difficult, tough, hard to navigate sort of scenario. And, and I can't tell you how many times I've heard from people, I just don't want to be a burden. I just don't want to be a burden. You're looking at them going, listen, um, you, it's, I'm not going to say you're not going to be a burden, if, but that's not what you need to hear. What you need to hear is that can sometimes be okay. Like it's okay that you're broken beyond this point that is easily fixable. We live with the sense of it's got to be quick fix. It's got to be a quick fix. It's okay to. It's okay to exercise flaws. It's okay to be open, but not like fully broken. That's not okay to do. And I just don't know that that's right. Story about. Uh, Jesus from the guy named John. John was one of Jesus' disciples who, again, is, is the one who we've been focusing on his stories because he's the one that said, I remember Jesus telling me to love people the way that I love them. And here's some, some of the stories that I remember him telling me. His, his is the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. His account of the teachings and persons of Jesus came latest, which means he probably knew that Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already written some things about Jesus. And yet he felt compelled because he had kind of a unique take on it, perhaps, um, to be able to include his version of the story. He would have been uh, pretty far along in age, uh, pastor at one of his local churches in the community, a high-level leader, somebody who, who people look to for, um, for stories. And when he told it, this... This has the feeling of him just kind of like getting up on a stage, not really opening a Bible because they wouldn't have a Bible right there. Just kind of like folding his arms and being like, I remember this time when Jesus did this. Th- that's, the, that's the feeling that I get when I read this. Let's read it together. Um, it's, uh, not, you don't have to say it out loud, but you'll see it on the screen. That's what I mean when I say read it together. Um, John 5, verses 1 through 6. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five colored colonnades. He's providing like descriptors to be like, you guys probably haven't been there, and this is great for us because we've probably never been there either. So he's trying to paint the picture for us of a scenario that actually happened, not like once upon a time in this far-off town called Jerusalem. Jesus did this. He's like, no, 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 there's a real town. There's these pools. That's got, they've got these healing pools. thing. They believed that um, if you were an invalid, that they, when the water, this is, what they, this is the story, the backdrop. When the water trickled, uh, that, that was an angel's wing that it was there, and if you got in the water first, it was a race to the pool. Um, and if you got in there first, then you could be healed. And so they would, they would um, either haul themselves there or get hauled if they couldn't walk to these places. Imagine being somebody, like, as we're going to find out here, who's lame, who can't walk, whose goal is to get in the pool uh, before anybody else as soon as the water trickles, right? And if, if you can't walk, then you can't swim. So that would be like a very faith-driven... I just was thinking about this. This is not even in my notes. That would be a very faith-driven thing. I'm just going to launch myself into this pool, and then I, as, when I hit the water, I hope I get healed. Um, so anyways, that's, that's a side note. That doesn't matter. All right. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. That's significant. We don't know how old he was. Uh, John doesn't provide any sort of backdrop. I know you're expecting from me some sort of uh, like a history on this guy or where he worked and how he became lame and whether he was born with it or something happened to him. I don't have any of that. John doesn't give it. Doesn't feel like it's important. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him a question. And here's his question. And here's where the end of the story. Here's where the story ends for us. Do you want to get well? Have you ever read that phrase before? Have you ever? Have you ever seen, I mean, you've probably heard the Bethesda pool. If you've grown up in church before, you've heard this story before. But um, we're always quick to jump to the next verse where um, the guy comes up with this excuse about, uh, well, I'm not even going to say it. You've figured it out for yourself. You read the end of the story on your own. What I want to focus on is this question right here. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Think of the context for Jesus asking this question. Guy who's been sick for lame, for 38 years, for at least a good chunk of his life, if not his whole life. And Jesus has the audacity to ask him, do you want to get well? What do you think, Jesus? I imagine that this would have come up when like John's sitting around the campfire with a bunch of people going, you know, all right, you've told us all these really cool things about Jesus. Can you give us a little dirt on Jesus? You ever had one of those conversations? You did this this week with, at family dinner, right? Thanksgiving dinner. You're like, Grandma, tell us a little dirt on Grandpa. Tell him something. Did Grandpa ever do anything stupid? Tell us about that time, right? This is them going, all right, John, so Jesus sounds like this perfect perfect character. Can you tell us any time where he did something stupid? You're like, well, there's this one time he asked this really insensitive question. He saw somebody who'd been sick for 38 years and goes, do you even want to get well? Like, He's at the pool, man. This is the pool where they thought you got well. What kind of a ridiculous rhetorical question is this? That's why for me, I think there's a question behind the question. That's why when I get, when I get to this spot, I don't know about you, but I'm like, there's got to be something here. There's got to be, what's he asking really? What, what's going on? Because surely he, surely Jesus isn't blown away that this guy would want to get well. Listen, A year and a half ago, or not even, almost two years ago. Next month will be the two-year anniversary that I got in that car accident, right? And I was in the hospital for like seven days. I never once had a doctor come in and go, well, Brent, do you think you wanna get well? That would say more about him than it would about me. I The first question I had when I woke up was, how do I get home? What do I need to do to get home? Here's my list of all the seven things I need to make sure that take place before I go home. That's our question. When we walk in, to a hospital, to go visit a family member who's been in some sort of accident. Your question is, how long until full recovery, isn't it? Fixed, but, or, you know, or broken, but fixable. Damaged, but not like beyond repair. What does it take to get back to normal? What does it take to get back to normal? Do you even want to get well isn't on our radar screen, because all we're asking is how long until full recovery. And yet Jesus' question insinuates something, and it leaves some things out in here. He's asking this man who has spent pretty much his entire life, I mean, again, we don't know his age, but a good chunk of his life living into this identity. And so this question for him is so significant because what he did feel was important Was to say to this thing, normally, again, this is all he's ever known for 38 years. Are you sure you want something different right now, man? For thirty-eight years, you've lived this life. You have been known as the person who's been lame. You this is you've come to grips with your brokenness. You've embraced your brokenness. You're no longer asking the question how long until full recovery. You used to daydream about running and jumping and skipping and swimming and all that stuff, but those days are long gone. You've kind of embraced this brokenness as part of who you are. It's about what people know about you. You've gotten out of this idea of conditional happiness, which is someday when I'm better, I'll finally be happy someday when I'm better, someday, someday, you know that you're broken. People are more concerned about your brokenness than you are. People go, I feel so bad that you're, you know, that you can't walk. And he's like, hey, and he's got all the jokes about what do you call a man with no arms and no legs, you know, that can't do anything. You call him Matt, right? <laughs> we just joke about it, right? He laughs about it. He didn't do that in the scripture. I'm making that up. But anyways, the point of it is he's gotten over it even when other people haven't gotten over it. And the reason he's gotten over it is he's embraced his brokenness. He knows I'm broken. I can't do all of the things that I wanna do and I don't fret about it anymore. Maybe I used to, but I'm 38 years old now or, or it's, been, it's been like this for 38 years. It's been so long this way, I don't know anything different. I now understand that I am gonna be a burden on people who have to haul me down to this pool and I've gotten okay with it. I don't I probably don't apologize. I'm so sorry you have to do this. I'm so sorry you have to do this. I'm so At 38 years, I'm done. I'm past that. If they like me, they like me with my brokenness and all that stuff. I need them to be able to survive and do this. I've embraced this sort of brokenness and I've embraced this weakness in this way. The hard part is when you haven't. The hard part is when you haven't embraced it. When it still feels like I'll be happy when this is over. I'll be happy when there's full recovery. Now, listen, some of your greatest heroes and our greatest heroes in scripture have got a brokenness uh, that was a pretty ugly side of things. And it was only when they embraced their brokenness. Because we look at a guy like Solomon, we like, Solomon's got, he's like the, the guy who built the temple and he's got all this kind of thing. And he's broken this idea of, he didn't even finish his life. Well, David, David's one of the most popular, you, have, you know somebody named David. Biblical name, one of the most prominent names that we know of in Scripture, has an affair with somebody who's married, then ends up getting the, the husband killed in war, uh, ha- brings her on as his wife. What a nice gesture of, of, you know, brotherhood there. And it's it's this sticky, ugly, nasty situation Writes a song about it. Psalm chapter 51 embraces this brokenness, understands like, like I'm a depraved individual. Like I'm not like, oh, I need to do a little bit better. Writes tons of psalms and stories that embrace, if you've ever read any of these psalms, embrace brokenness, who cry out through song saying things like, man, if it was just up to me, what I don't need is another chance. What I don't need is an opportunity to do better next time. Oh, what I need is a savior to save me from myself because I'm broken because I'm absolutely jacked up and miserable. Paul, New Testament. Let's jump over here for for a second with Paul. Uh, Paul, we know, was a guy who um, uh, used to be named Saul, had this massive conversion story. Um, He is the exact opposite of what you think uh, would would be somebody who would easily convert to Christianity. He would be like the, the, the one that would be like the hardest one. And all of a sudden, he changes his mind about who Jesus is. And then he becomes the like ultimate church planner, going and starting churches in all kinds of different communities. He goes on three different missionary journeys. And most of our New Testament are books and letters that he wrote back and forth to all of these different churches. One of them being a church in Corinth. And there's two letters that we have, first and second Corinthians. And in second Corinthians, we read about him coming to grips with a little bit of the brokenness that he's involved in. Here's what he says in verse uh, 7 of chapter 12 Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. He's opening up to a people group that, uh, that he has a relationship with, and he's telling them about his weakness. And he's not saying, like, oh, there's something a little bit wrong with me. He's gonna talk about how there's something significantly wrong with me and you've probably noticed it before. He's, he's not saying, I have a confession to make. You don't. You, this may be the first time you've ever heard about this, but there's something wrong with me. <clears throat> it's almost as if he's saying, you know this about me. I'm just telling you how much I've embraced it and I'm, you and I'm allowing God to use me in spite of this. <clears throat> in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. This is why, or that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. There's a lot of speculation about what this thorn in the flesh was, was it a medical condition, Uh, A lot of times uh, people, uh, a lot of theologians think it was some sort of altitude sickness um, that when he would, it wouldn't be good for travel. And yet that was the path that he chose. So he's like, I'm called to be a missionary. God, I feel like God has placed a call on me to do missionary travel work. And yet traveling hurts me physically. And he's like, I've asked him to take it away because it would make sense. God, if you called me to this, why make it difficult for me to do this? And he keeps saying to me, my grace is sufficient for you. In your weakness... In your weakness, in your ability to, uh, in your visible me, in your, in your visible way of not measuring up, when you are successful, it speaks not of your efforts, but of my grace in your life. So Paul understands, listen, this, this has the potential for me had I not had any sort of infirmity or weakness or brokenness about me to be like, wow, isn't Paul so great? Isn't Paul so this? Isn't Paul so whatever? And he's like, I know that I'm limited in my abilities to do this. And, and a lot of times I think that Paul was had a very abrasive personality too. This might, may have been a result of this infirmity or whatever, where I think a lot of people either liked or hated Paul. You've had friends like that before. Um, and he goes, I know this about me. And I know that it's not gonna be like, I need to try harder or do better. Like I've embraced this and I have some shortcomings and any, sort of, and any sort of success that I have or any sort of movement I have that is any, of any value to anybody now reflects the grace of a heavenly father who works with brokenness rather than the efforts of me as a human being. Listen, that's like a powerful thing, man. Because you and I, we we live with uh, an awareness of our brokenness, but we often try and put our best efforts to be able to hide that. And instead, Paul says, no, I, it's out in the open. I embrace it. I embrace it for when I'm weak. That's when I am most strong. So you know people who are broken. You know people who are working with this. And a lot of times it comes through, I know in the form of like this uh, especially in our society like this depression thing like this this depressive tendencies where I just can't shake this and I feel broken and I, I don't want people to know like i I, I um uh, uh it's it's a it's a mental illness thing for me and i and I know that and I'm struggling with it so much and I don't want to be a burden on people and and and, and it's this like weird <sighs> I want to be fixed I want to be right I know that I'm it's okay to be damaged, but fixable. This doesn't feel fixable to me. So therefore, I don't even know what to do with this. And if that's you or you know somebody like that, I think the message that we have in this sense or in presented for us here is that Jesus understood that and went to this man who said, do you even want to be fixed? You've been so reliant. You've been so aware of your brokenness, that it's developed a content with you, it's developed an awareness of reliance on a savior, or I need others, or I can't do this on my own, that if I heal that about you, it's going to be harder for you to get there again. In fact, after he heals him, I just, spoiler alert, I just gave away the ending even though I said I wouldn't. After he heals him, he looks at this guy and says, all right, now stop living a life of sin or else you're gonna fall into a far worse predicament than you're at. When you were in that mode of living, you understood your limitations. You understood your need for others, your inability to do it all yourself. But when you're broken, on a very tangible physical level, you understand the need for others, which opens you up to be more receptive to a need for a savior, and that can that can be almost a, a blessing in disguise. And I and I know you would say, and I would say too. I mean, this this guy would say, if you could go back, I, I wouldn't want to be lame or disabled, but I can I can understand the opportunity to embrace the brokenness as it points me towards a recognition that I I need a savior. So here's my thing for us. I think you need to befriend somebody who is wrecked and restless and broken, but not just for their sake, but for your sake. They have the opportunity to teach us something absolutely, incredibly significant. That God works with broken people, side note, because that's all he has to work with. Because we're all broken. Some of us are just more aware of it than others. And we're all in need of a savior, not a second chance, not another opportunity, not a, 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 an opportunity to be good enough to be somebody that we feel the need to be. This is Paul opening up saying, "I get it, man." For me, a physical infirmity, but I celebrate my weakness because it points me towards a reliance and it it makes me see the bigger picture of really understanding that I could never be good enough to do this. Listen, a couple of takeaway points to help put some handles on this for you as you think about what this might look like in your personal life. Number one, afflicted doesn't mean ineffective and damaged doesn't mean done. You should move towards broken people because when you do, you realize, gosh, we're all kind of broken. And afflicted does not mean ineffective. And damaged does not mean done. Tim Keller, an author, um, pastor in New York City, wrote about this a while back, and he wrote this, All you need is nothing, and all you need is need. The real status of where we are as human beings, as fa- in our fallen nature... In the depravity that we find ourselves in, that is not celebrated in society, by the way. You really almost have to come to church to hear about the fact that you're broken. (laughs) We know it. We, We know it. We just live in a world that tells us, it's all right, you do you, and you'll be all right. So you have to come to a church for me to be like, all right, you're an idiot, we're all idiots. And I'm not shaking my finger and being like, you're an idiot, like we are. When you figure that out, when you realize your need for a Savior, you're in a better position to be able to actually receive the grace that's being offered. Because until you get to that point, point, you kind of live like, oh, I don't really need that. I'm good. No, like, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty decent person. Ask anybody. All you need is nothing. All you need is need. So when we befriend people, who in visible ways are broken, restless, hurting, damaged, it reminds us that in a deeper sense and in a different way, but not in a lesser way, in a deeper way, so am I. So am I. And their reliance on others to help them get through things is representative and indicative of my reliance on a heavenly father through whose grace I understand my status as well so that I'm not the hero of my own story, that Jesus is my Savior. So we are going to receive communion, which is a very, I can't think of a more tangible way to remind ourselves of that. We do this at the conclusion of every series, so it wasn't based on the message necessarily, but um, the church throughout history has received communion as kind of a way of um, recognizing, remembering, memorializing what Christ has done for us Um, And it's taken a lot of different forms throughout the centuries that the church has been in existence. Uh, For us, how it looks is we're going to have a time of reflection. A song is going to be played by the band as they come up and prepare for that. Uh, We're going to have two stations on the sides. Uh, On this side is going to be gluten-free and juice. And on this side is going to be regular bread and wine. So based on dietary or age restrictions, you can choose uh, whichever one you want to there. Um, and then we're going to leave the middle open. We're trying a new look format, trying to help the flow a little bit because it feels like it's always been a little bit of a traffic jam. So as soon as the band begins to sing, you're invited to but not obligated to. We would never force you to do anything you're not comfortable doing. Um, make your way to the edges or the outside or come through the back and then like, traverse back that way through the center. Does that make sense? There's going to be a plate with some bread and some juice. We take the bread, we dip it in the juice. Uh, and then as we do this, for us it's a... Uh, memento. It's a, a memorialization. It's it's, a, it's a, a, a literally a sacrament of the church that reminds us that Christ died for us because left to our own devices, we are inherently broken and in need of a savior, not a second chance. So um, would you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us. And then we will participate in communion together. Let's pray. Father, At different times in our life, we are more aware of our brokenness than others. Sometimes it's a situation that we are going through, a relationship that we've had, or something we've read or watched or whatever. I I pray that today would be one of those moments where we may not be um, visibly broken. We've done a pretty good job of keeping up a pretty decent facade because we've lived with this thing about broken, you know, broken but not too far, damaged but fixable. I pray that we would learn to embrace uh, a shift in our thinking that says damaged beyond what we could ourselves fix, but lucky for us, there's a savior. Damaged beyond any sort of, I could do it if I just had one more try at it um, and in need of somebody whose grace is sufficient for us. And that is uh, what we celebrate in your son in Jesus Christ as we receive communion together. May that infiltrate our minds. May it shape how we live. May it shape how we uh, look at and befriend others around us. May we love in the same way that you loved us. Give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our life. The curse to act on it in your name. Amen.